If you have your Bibles, would you join me in Romans chapter 8? We'll be looking this morning once again at verses 28 through 30. Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Construction on the original World Center or World Trade Center towers began on August the 5th. 1966. The North Tower was completed in December 1970, the South Tower in July 1971. Now, during that five-year period of construction, 60 workers lost their lives. 60. Making it the 10th deadliest construction project in modern history in terms of deaths per 1,000 workers. The nine Projects which rank above it on that ignominious list are all canals, tunnels, bridges, or railroads. In other words, the original World Trade Center Towers is the deadliest building project in modern history. By way of comparison, when the one World Trade Center Tower was completed in November of 2014, only two workers had lost their lives on the project, which is a testimony to the advances in worker safety during the intervening 40 years. Now, last week, I compared Romans 8, 28 to 30 to a skyscraper. The pinnacle of the skyscraper is that promise of verse 28, that God is working all things, all of the pain, all of the sufferings, all of the groanings of this life. God is working all of those things together for your good if you love God and are called according to his purpose. That good, which Paul has in mind, is defined in verse 29 as conformity into the image of Christ, and in verse 30 as glorification. This glory has been the aim, it has been the goal toward which Paul has been driving since verse 17 when he said that if we would suffer with Christ, we would also be glorified with Christ. Say, so that is the peak, the top of the skyscraper that's soaring into the clouds, the promise that one day we will shine like the stars, radiant with the glory of the Son, and not only that, but all of the groanings and trials and tribulations and sufferings and frustrations of this life are like those steel girders which God is riveting and welding together in the construction of that glory. No suffering of this life is wasted, no groaning is incidental, no pain is purposeless. But such a soaring promise must rest upon deep and strong and immovable foundations. That foundation is found in verse 29. It is the sovereign election and predestination of God. And so last week I argued that when Paul writes that 
those whom God foreknew, he also predestined. That foreknow does not mean that God looks into the future from his, uh, his position in eternity past and he foresees all those who will believe on him. And on that basis, he predestines those future believers to salvation. That, that God looks into the future and chooses those who first choose him. That is not what Paul means when he says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. I gave you what I, I believe to be four airtight arguments that prove that assertion that when God says, or Paul says rather, that those whom God foreknew, he also predestined, what he means is that those whom God elected or chose, he also predestined. Four arguments. First, the doctrine of God's omniscience teaches that God knows all things that have been, are, will be, or might have been in one eternal act. Therefore, if foreknow means here in verse 29 that God foreknows facts about individuals, specifically their faith or their unbelief, then it doesn't make sense for Paul to speak of those particular group of people whom God foreknew as if there were others that God doesn't foreknow. It does, however, make sense to speak of those whom God foreknow if Foreknew, if by foreknew, Paul means those whom he chose. Second, throughout Scripture, the verb know, whether it be yada in the Hebrew Old Testament or gnosko in the Greek New Testament, or foreknow, when applied to God, those verbs always, 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 without exception, mean something like chose or loved or entered into a covenant relationship with. Third, if those he foreknew meant those he foreknew would believe, then that would make human will the determining factor in salvation. When the Bible uniformly, consistently, repeatedly, explicitly claims that God's will is determinative in those whom he saves. And fourth and finally, the fact that the calling of verse 30 is effectual. That is because all who are called are justified. And that this calling results from predestination because those whom he predestined, he also called. Then even if those he foreknew meant those he foresaw would believe in him, what God would be foreseeing is a faith which he himself brought into being through his effectual call, which is given only to those whom he predestines. Therefore, the reason that you and I can have confidence and assurance that the soaring promise of verse 28 is true, that all things will work together for your good, that God will work all of your groaning for your glory is because you were chosen and predestined for glory according to God's infallible purpose and not your own faltering will. If, in the final analysis, your choice, your will, your purpose 
is determinative in your salvation, then you can have no assurance today that you will not abandon Christ tomorrow if the suffering gets too terrible. But if while you were dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1, if while you were not seeking God, Romans 3.11, if while you were hostile towards God, Romans 8.7, God chose you and effectually called you out of death and into life and out of unbelief and into faith. He, he called you according to his infallible purpose of election. Then your faith will remain and persevere as long as God's purpose remains. That is forever. That is the immovable foundation of the skyscraper promise of future glory in verse 28. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to connect that foundation of God's sovereign electing grace in eternity past with the skyscraper pinnacle promise of glory in eternity future by means of an unbreakable chain of events which are described for us in verse 30. These four terms that appear in verse 30, and I'm going to add a fifth term from the context, function like that concrete and steel core which runs through the center of the One World Trade Center tower all the way from the foundation 110 feet below ground all the way up to the top floor 1,368 feet above ground. And the main point that I'm going to drive home is that none are lost in the construction of that glory. Not one. All who are there when the foundations are laid are there when the spire is riveted to the top and the building is complete in all of its splendor. Not one is lost between the predestination in eternity past and the glorification in eternity future. No one falls off the scaffolding and plummets hundreds of feet to their destruction. No one is crushed beneath the weight of an errant steel girder that snaps free from a crane. On the contrary, we are secured to that concrete and steel core by an unbreakable tether of sovereign grace, and there are no falling girders or other mishaps when God oversees the construction. That's why Paul can confidently declare in verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he did call. And those whom he called, he did justify. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. From eternity past to eternity future, from foundation to peak, none are lost. All who were there in predestination are there in glorification. Why? Because from beginning to end, this is not the work of man. This is the work of God and his sovereign, infallible grace. Now the first step in this unbreakable chain of sovereign grace, which will unfailingly bring those who love God and are called according to his purpose to that everlasting good and glory, is the step of predestination. Verse 30, those whom he predestined. Now, predestination is to many people a scary word. It conjures up images in people's minds of 
a divine puppet master, that would be God, pulling on strings and, and, and making the marionette, that is the human being, kind of dance at his pleasure. Or a, a divine chess master moving human beings around the cosmic board like pawns. Or a divine programmer writing code that causes humans to move around like robots according to his design. That's what people think when they hear the word predestination. I want to suggest to you that all of those images are deeply flawed. They are two-dimensional and flat. We are infinitely more than puppets or pawns or robots. For we were made in the image of God, possessing a rational mind and a moral will. A puppet has no will. A pawn makes no decisions. A robot does not discern right from wrong. And God has infinitely more resources at his disposal than string and code. It is possible for human beings to act freely, that is, in accordance with our nature and our desires, and for God to so determine those actions such that he governs all creatures and all their actions. So that all events occur according to his foreordained plan and purpose, as it says in Ephesians 1.11. Predestination does not take away man's free will rightly understood. All men are free to do what they want to to do what it is in their nature to do. No man moves a finger but toward his strongest desire at any given moment. The problem is our natures are so corrupted by sin that we don't want what is right unless God changes our natures. More on that in a moment. Furthermore, once we have established the doctrine of election, right, that God has chosen from before the foundations of the world whom he will save according to his own purpose without any reference or consideration of our own merit or our own will or our own faith, then the doctrine of predestination simply follows naturally and logically and necessarily. In other words, technically speaking, your problem is not with predestination, your problem is with election. Now, what's the difference? Election refers to God's sovereignly selecting out from the midst of the mass of sinful humanity a a certain number of individuals, many, according to Paul in verse 29, to whom he will extend mercy, thereby passing over the rest and leaving them to their deserved judgment. Predestination is God's setting this certain number of elect individuals upon a course towards everlasting glory. His determination to infallibly bring that destiny to pass. In other words, election refers to selection. Predestination refers to direction. He chooses and he predestines. And that direction is spelled out in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined for what? That they would be conformed into the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many 
brothers. And in verse 30, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. So having chosen you from the foundations of the world, God predestined you for glory. God selected you and he directed you. Okay, let's ascend a little higher then on our skyscraper to glory. The next step is in God's infallible purpose to bring his people to glory is calling. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. It is this calling that links the eternal choice of God in eternity past to the temporal work of God in eternity present. Now, two points need to be made about this calling. First, what Paul is talking about here is a particular call given to a particular people. In other words, this is not the general call of the gospel, which goes out to all people everywhere. The general call of the gospel is the call that proceeds from human lips to human ears or from human pen to human eyes. We see this general call of the gospel all over scripture. Wherever the gospel is preached, there is the general call. Matthew 11, 28. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's the general call. John 7, 37. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me. As scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. There's the general call. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Isaiah 55. There's the general call of the gospel, even in the Old Testament. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who desires take the water of life without price. It's all throughout the scripture, the general call of the gospel. And every Sunday morning as I preach, I issue the general call of the gospel. Every person here who is awake and hears my voice receives this call, and they either receive it, accept it, or they deny it and reject it. In other words, the general call is universal and it is resistible. That is not the call that Paul is speaking of here in Romans 8.30. The call of Romans 8.30 is a specific call to particular individuals, not to all people generally. How do we know? Well, because Paul uses restrictive language. Those whom he called, which implies that there are those whom he does not call. Furthermore, that this is not the general call of the gospel is evident from its effect. Those whom he called, he justified. Are all people everywhere universally justified? No. Therefore, not all people everywhere are universally called in this sense. 
This is a particular call given to a particular people, a people, he says, who are predestined for glory. Now, we can see the difference between these two calls, this particular effectual call and the universal general call in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul summarizes his own preaching and the effect which it had anywhere that he went. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called. You see that restrictive language again. To those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, in every city that Paul visited, he preached one message. The word of the cross, he calls it in verse 18. The gospel of Christ crucified, he calls it in verse 23. And he preached this one message in two different arenas, in the Jewish synagogue to the Jews, in the marketplace to the Greeks or the Gentiles. To the Jews, he said... This message of Christ crucified proved to be a stumbling block. They couldn't accept a crucified Messiah. That was not the kind of Messiah they expected. Frankly, it wasn't the kind of Messiah they wanted. They couldn't wrap their heads around the idea of the ineffable God becoming incarnate in human flesh and suffering a cursed death upon a cursed cross. It just made no sense to them. They could not wrap their hearts around a Messiah who came to deliver them from the bondage of their sins and from their debt to the law rather than from their bondage to the Romans. They could not abide a Messiah who came to tear down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile and to extend his mercies to the heathen. So they stumbled over him. When Paul issued the general call of the gospel, when he he preached Christ crucified, they stumbled all over his words and they rejected it. To the Greeks, this message proved, Paul says, to be folly or foolishness. They couldn't accept a God who would become flesh, a God who would suffer vicariously for sinners, a, a God who would submit to the ignominy of death on a cross and then who rose again on the third day. This sounded to the Greek mind like utter nonsense, Foolishness, a silly Jewish myth from a silly Jewish man. So Paul goes to the Greeks, he extends the general call, they say, no. And Paul goes to the Gentiles, he extends the general call, and they say, nah. So how does Paul get any disciples? How was it that Paul was able to establish churches in every city? How was it that the word of the cross, which is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks, and that's all there are, Jews and Greeks, how does that word of the cross spread like wildfire throughout the Mediterranean world, conquering darkness and unbelief everywhere it goes? Paul says, it's because in and through his general call, which ushered forth from Paul's lips, there came another call, a divine call, 
that comes from the lips of God himself. Look again at verses 22 to 24. First, Paul divides the world into two groups. The Jews who demand signs, the Greeks who seek wisdom. Verse 22. Then comes the general call of the gospel, the preaching of Christ crucified. This general call meets with rejection from both groups. Stumbling block to the Jews, folly to the Gentiles. But then in verse 24, Paul mentions a third group made up of members of the first two groups. And this third group for whom the word of the cross, the message of Christ crucified, is no longer a stumbling block, is no longer folly, it's no longer foolishness, it is the very wisdom and power of God unto salvation. Paul identifies this third group, not by ethnic categories, not by educational categories, not by socioeconomic categories. He identifies them as those who are what? Called. Through Paul's general call of the gospel came the particular call of God. And this call came with such power that it transformed the hearts and the minds of the called such that the gospel ceased in their own hearts and minds to be a stumbling block or foolishness. And it became the gloriously true and wise and powerful news of the gospel, the most glorious news they'd ever heard. And they gladly embraced it with their whole lives. That's the call of Romans 8.30. A particular call to those who are predestined that leads infallibly and irresistibly to justification. Which brings us to the second note about this call. It's not only a particular call, it's an effectual call. That is, it creates what it commands. It commands faith and faith happens. We see the effectual nature of this call once again in the link between calling and justification. You'll notice that both groups are co-extensive, which means that there's the same number in the calling as in the justified. Those whom he called, he also justified. How many? All of them. So we ask, are all justified? That is, do all come to faith? No. Therefore, not all are called. It's particular. Now we ask, are there any who are called who are not justified? No, all who are called are justified. Therefore, this call is always effective in bringing about justifying faith. There's the effectual nature of this call. Now, once again, we can turn to Paul's writings in in the Corinthian letters and we can find an illustration of this effectual call. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul describes the effect of this call upon the hearts of those who are called. He says this, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. There's a problem here when we preach. We, we, We image forth the gospel and people can't see it. It's like they've got a shroud over their eyes. So what do you do, Paul? Well, we just keep proclaiming not ourselves, but Christ Jesus our Lord and Ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. We proclaim Jesus as Lord and we serve folks. And something happens as Paul proclaims Jesus as Lord. 
The same God who said, let light shine out of darkness, shines in hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The way Paul describes it here, there is a satanic blindness that lies over the minds of unbelievers and veils the gospel and prevents them from seeing in the gospel the glory of God. What do they see? They see a stumbling block. They see foolishness. They don't see glory. When unbelievers hear the gospel, they do not hear it as glorious. When they hear that Christ Jesus is Lord, they do not find Jesus to be glorious. Why? Because there is a dark, black, impenetrable veil which lies over their minds. So how is anyone to be saved? Paul says, God speaks into the darkness. And he says, let there be light. And there is light. Just as God spoke in, in, in long ages past into the dark and primordial void and said, let there be light, and there was light. So God calls into the darkness of men's minds, and he says, let there be light, and there is light. And that veil, that shroud is rent in two, and the darkness of the mind is pierced by the light of the gospel. And suddenly, they see Jesus as he truly is, as the radiance of God's glory, the image of the invisible God. Just as God's call was effectual in the first creation, so it is effectual in the new creation. It creates what it commands. This call that Paul speaks of is not an invitation. It is a summons. And it is immediately effective, just as turning on a light switch immediately banishes darkness from the room. The effectual call is a summons to life. When I preach the gospel to people who are dead in trespasses and sins, when I issue the general call, when I invite men to come to Christ that they might live, that call on its own, apart from God's effective calling, is about as productive as if I were to stand over someone's grave and bid them to rise. It's not going to happen. My words don't possess that kind of power. I can call till my voice gives out and they won't live. Why? Because life has not been granted to me to impart it. But Jesus says, to me has been given the power to raise the dead. When Jesus calls, the dead come to life and they live. Why? Because his call comes with the power to raise the dead and to impart life. When Jesus stood outside the tomb of Lazarus and he said, come forth, that was not an invitation. Lazarus did not hear that call. Why? Because he was dead. Let's try that again. Why? Because he was, there you go. He didn't hear it. Therefore, the call must pierce through his deadness. It must awaken him to life. It must breathe life into his lungs. It must spark electricity into his brain. When Jesus said, come forth, he was not inviting Lazarus to come forth from the grave. He was commanding him to come forth. It summoned his soul up from the depths of Sheol and Lazarus arose and he came forth. And that is exactly what happens when God calls sinners from death to life. 
It is a particular call, Lazarus. It is an effectual call, come forth. And it is a life-giving call, and he who was dead came forth. How can God be sure that all those whom he has predestined for glory will then be justified and attain to that glory? Because he calls them out of death and into life and out of darkness and into light and out of unbelief and into faith. What if, what if some of the predestined were to reject the gospel? Wouldn't that destroy the whole plan? They don't. They won't. They can't. This call is irresistible. It imparts a new nature that sees the glory of God and hears the call of God and feels the love of God and desires the forgiveness and the fellowship of God. For those who are called, it is now in their nature to believe. And so they come to God, not with arms tied behind their back, not kicking and screaming into the kingdom. They come to Christ freely, gladly, joyfully. Indeed, you could not keep them away. Which is precisely why no amount of suffering and no amount of groaning can destroy their faith. It is now no longer in the nature of the called not to believe. Well, proceeding further up the skyscraper of glory, we come to justification. Those whom he called, he also justified. Because the calling is effectual, it always results in faith. The wholehearted embrace of Christ as he is freely offered to us in the gospel. That is, it embraces Jesus as our atoning sacrifice, our justifying righteousness, and our sovereign king. And I choose those words very, very carefully because I think those are the three components of biblical faith. True biblical saving faith is not mere knowledge of facts. Jesus died and rose again. It's, it's not bare assent to those facts as being true. Rather, true biblical saving faith is a wholehearted embrace of Christ as my atoning sacrifice, the all-sufficient payment of my debt of sin, which is completely sufficient to satisfy the just and holy wrath of God. True biblical saving faith is the wholehearted embrace of Christ as my justifying righteousness. It forsakes my trust in my own works and my own merit, and instead it receives the free righteousness of Christ imputed to me by faith. And true biblical saving faith is a wholehearted embrace of Christ as my sovereign king who commands my obedience, and exercises his rule and reign over my life through his word. The faith that justifies is a faith which embraces Christ as my atoning sacrifice, my justifying righteousness, and my sovereign king. That's faith. And it is a faith which is created by God in the effectual call. Or maybe better, it is awakened by God in his effectual call. In other words, God doesn't believe for me. He doesn't place faith within me as something external to me. He doesn't have to. He has so changed my nature and awakened me out of death and into life. He has opened my eyes and enlightened my mind and quickened my heart such that I now see Christ as he really is and seeing I believe and rejoice in him as though by a reflex. 
And through that faith, God justifies me. That is, God declares me not guilty. He declares my debt of sin satisfied in the death of Christ. He imputes to me the righteousness of Christ. And on that basis, he declares me righteous. In other words, justification is a double imputation. My sin and unrighteousness imputed to Christ, punished in him at the cross. Christ's righteousness imputed to me by faith. God looks at me and he sees a righteous man. And he says, accept. Two points likewise about justification. First, you'll note that it's an instantaneous act. It's not as clear in the English as it is in the Greek, but justified there is in the aorist tense, which means it is a completed point-in-time act. Note that we are not being justified. That would be an imperfect or present tense. Nor will we be justified, he says. That would be a future tense. We are are justified. The action is complete. It is final, which means that the death of Christ must have regard not only to the sins I've already committed, it must have regard to the sins I will yet commit in the weakness and frailty of my faith. It's once for all. I don't have to worry today that I won't be justified tomorrow. Second, it's an irrevocable act. It cannot be undone. God will never condemn those whom he has justified. How can we be so sure? Because those whom he has justified, he has also glorified. How many? Every one of them. Not one who has been justified will fail to be glorified. None are lost, which is how we can be absolutely certain that all things will work together for good to those who love God and are called of God to faith and are justified by Christ. There's one more step before we reach the top, and it is admittedly not found in verse 30, but it doesn't have to be because it's everywhere else in this chapter. We know nobody moves straight from justification to glorification. Justification is like the beginning of the Christian life. It's like the ground floor, if you will. Glorification is the end. It's the top. And there is no express elevator from the bottom to the top. There are only stairs. Lots of them. And they hurt. And indeed, there will be times when you feel that you cannot possibly climb any more stairs. This is the step or steps of groaning with Christ, suffering with Christ. And Paul has been clear that no one gets to the top, no one gets to the glory apart from the groaning, apart from the suffering. Verse 17 said, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. These groanings are the all things in verse 28 that must work for our good, that is, for our glory. There's no way around them. There is only a way through them. They are the stairs by which we ascend to glory. Now, as we learn from the first half of Romans 8, we're not left to climb the stairs of suffering in our own strength and power. We are given the indwelling presence and power of the Spirit. And here's the promise of verse 28. Every stair leads to the top. 
Every groaning moves you a step closer to the glory. And the wonder of sanctification, which is just the process of climbing stairs. The wonder of sanctification is that the longer and the higher you climb, the stronger you get. Because suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint. Every stair you've climbed, every stair you will climb, will lead to everlasting glory. That's Romans 8.28. But the day will come when there will be no more stairs to climb. You will reach that last platform, walk through that door, and we will attend your funeral. And we will say things like this. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. I can't tell you what's through that door. All I know is that it's glorious. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. We don't know what's through that door at the top of the stairs. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. What you can see on a clear day from the 104th floor of the One World Trade Center observation deck is nothing in comparison with the glory to be revealed to us. I don't know what's on the other side of that door in full. But here's what I do know. We will inherit a glorified creation. No more fall, no more curse, no more decay, no more shattered mirrors failing to reflect accurately the splendor of God. It will be perfection. The glory of the new creation will be limited only by the limits of God's creative genius, which is limitless. The glory of the new creation is what Paul means in verse 18 by the glory to be revealed to us. Secondly, we shall inherit a glorified body and soul. No more sin, no more corrupt desires, no more disordered loves, no more sickness, no more disease, no more death. Our bodies will be perfect vessels designed for fullness of joy. Our minds will not be inhibited by sin and darkness. Our hearts will love and delight in that which is good and true and beautiful. This is what Paul means by being glorified with Christ. Verse 17, the revelation of the sons of God. Verse 19, the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Verse 21, the redemption of our bodies. Verse 23, conformity into the image of his son. Verse 29, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, Jesus. Thirdly, we shall inherit the glory of God. That is, we shall inherit God himself. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. 
And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of the sun or moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The reason we can be so confident that we will get there, the reason we can be so confident that none of the sufferings or groanings of this life will thwart the eternal purpose of God and rob us of the glory for which we've been predestined. Indeed, that all groanings and all sufferings must serve that glory is because the promise of glory is held together by a concrete and steel core running all the way from predestination to calling, from calling to justification, from justification through groanings all the way to the top of glorification. A glory that is so certain that Paul speaks of it as though it were past, even though it is yet future. And the whole structure, the whole skyscraper of a promise rests upon this massive, immovable bedrock of God's sovereign election. This is strong granite doctrine in verses 29 and 30. It is concrete. It is steel. And I urge you to build your hope upon it. 